This is the Champlain Society podcast witnessed yesterday. My name is Greg Marshallton, and I'm talking from the Alan Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University in downtown Toronto. Today, we are going to be talking about the history of psychiatric care in Canada, in particular, the history of psychiatric hospitals, once known as mental hospitals or asylums. It is my great pleasure to once again interview Erica Dick, Professor and Canada Research Chair in the History of Medicine. Erica, welcome to Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast on Canadian history. So, what led you to the subject of the history of psychiatric care in the first place? Interestingly, I had been working on a a set of studies looking at drug experimentation, and one of the places that I had been focusing on was this hospital in Weyburn. And I had been collecting notes on it for some time and thought, you know, this would probably make for a good study, but had kind of left it aside. And then I I met and spent some time with one of the former superintendents of the hospital who described himself to me as, you know, the guy who got hired so he could shut down this hospital. And he continually (laughs) encouraged me to write this book, and it's it grew up over the next 15 years. I just wanted to, uh, if you could describe uh, what Weyburn is uh, to our listeners, where it's located, how big of a community it is, that sort of thing. Sure. So Weyburn is described by by several historians and policymakers as being the last asylum built in the British Commonwealth. It opened its doors in 1920, and it was a large sort of Gothic-style Victorian-era looking um, hospital with complete with gardens and grounds and quarters for staff, as uh, including the psychiatrists. Um, so it took up quite a, a large area of space in the southeastern part of Saskatchewan in a small community, what was then a small community of Weyburn. It is now a, a city by Saskatchewan standards. Um, it's now close to some oil reserves, so the, the city has actually grown quite a bit since the hospital was built. But the hospital always sort of sat slightly separate from the town or city, and uh, there's always been some tension between the folks living inside the hospital as as opposed to those living in the town. So you use the Weyburn Mental Hospital as your window into psychiatric care in the 20th century in Canada. It's a kind of a historical case study. Why did you focus on the Weyburn Mental Hospital? It's a good question. At first, I, as I mentioned, I was collecting notes about this hospital because it was the site of some interesting reforms that took place and some interesting drug experiments, and so I'd been collecting materials on that. But as more and more people suggested that I write a, a history of it, I started looking a little bit deeper into its origins and also its sort of longer historical story. And what I found, and I, embarrassingly, I'm surprised to find because I feel like I should have known this already, but as I mentioned, it was one of the last facilities built according to sort of these older standards or these traditional standards of care, these large, large-scale custodial facilities. And interestingly, it was also among the first, certainly in Canada, to start closing its doors and start really moving people out of the hospital and into the community on a large-scale basis. And so for those reasons, I think it helps to represent different, almost paradigmatic shifts in the way that we understand and manage care of people considered insane or mad or disordered or disabled. Oh, the last shall be first. So Weyburn was the last major institution of its type in some ways, but it was the first to deinstitutionalize. Can you describe um, 
at its peak, what its patient population would have looked like, and what its staff complement would have looked like. I won't be able to give you exact numbers and and, uh, trust my memory, Um, but what I can say is that like many other asylums or these large-scale institutions throughout North America, um, these institutions were notoriously overcrowded. And at its peak, Weyburn claimed to have over 4,000 patients inside its uh, quarters when they only really had beds for fewer than 2,000 patients. They also were severely understaffed, um, always claiming that they needed more help. And often, at least for the first two decades of its existence, the help was usually uh, hired on the basis of political patronage rather than any kind of professional training. And so not only were they understaffed, but they were inadequately staffed, which really created huge problems for managing the flow of people through the institution as well as you know any hope of rehabilitation. And one of the statistics that I, that I do remember um, is that 75% of the people who were initially institutionalized at the Weyburn Hospital spent the rest of their lives there. They were never let out the institution. The staff themselves are a combination of psychiatric nurses and who else? I mean, what were these people expected to do? There's a combination. I mean, early on, so when they opened the doors in the 1920s, there would be a a series of orderlies, um, some psychiatric nurses, although really the psychiatric nurse training program develops a little bit later um, in in full swing. There were clinical psychologists, um, psychiatrists, physicians, um, and then, of course, a whole variety of staff helping with, you know, the laundries and the kitchens, although... Very quickly, those jobs were overtaken by patients who were expected to first perform those tasks as, a, as part of their therapy, you know, on the, base, on the idea that it would be a good idea for people to learn these practical skills. But very, very quickly, and this is not unique to Weyburn, um, the policymakers and the um, administrators recognized that they could save a lot of money by having patients perform those tasks. So within a few years, a lot of those menial tasks are taken over by patients. Another major change in staffing complements comes with the introduction of um, some of the antipsychotic drug medications, which really starts in the 1950s. So drugs that are going to help control and that did help control some of the physical symptoms of some of the disorders that people experienced. And with those drugs, you could rely on less Um, physical strength of staff, so you could hire more women, for example, and you could have um, different levels of staff. You have more social workers coming in and engaging in talk therapies and more psychologists coming in at that time, where earlier a lot of the focus from staff was on physical restraints and on trying to keep people separated physically. How representative then was the Weyburn Mental Hospital? Um, How did it compare to places like Queen Street Mental Hospital in Toronto? Uh, And were the changes that occurred in Weyburn the same as the changes that occurred in other mental hospitals in the rest of Canada? Yeah, so of course there there are differences in terms of patient populations, in terms of some of the, the edges of the story, so when they were built and when they closed and what kinds of programs they engaged with. But, you know, what we're finding is that there's actually quite a lot of um, parallels amongst hospitals. Uh, we do know that in eastern Canada and in, in the Atlantic region, as well as throughout Quebec and Ontario, uh, a lot of the hospitals opened much, much earlier. And so they started and, and then grew. And so you've got these wings growing out of them. Whereas 
the hospital that was built in Saskatchewan had already anticipated some of the size that it requires. So you just see differences like that. Um, but for patients, for many of the patients who experience these places, um, they may have been relatively interchangeable. In fact, I'll just share with you one anecdote, which I think maybe typifies this. We found that, uh, you know, as I mentioned, patients were expected to do a lot of the labor. And one of the things they did is they cleared out the sewage and um, there were constant complaints of sewage backups in the basement. And they would wait until the winter for it to freeze over and then chip out this raw sewage that had accumulated in the basement of the building. Well, this story, believe it or not, repeats itself. And you find different institutions for whom patients describe the experience of chipping out sewage. And so here we see, I think it's it's a really interesting story. Not only is it rather horrific and, and uh, gory, um, but by the same token, it, it helps to, I think, remind us of how these places were underfunded. They were not constructed to standard. They were not constructed adequately. And yet we had people living in these places who were expected to then also um, live in these conditions and take care of themselves under those circumstances. And uh, remarkably, the sewage backup story is just, it repeats itself across Canada. Well, I remember reading a letter in the archives one time, and it was between... Uh, the premier, uh, Tommy Douglas, sometime in the, I think it was the, the 1950s with the superintendent of Weyburn, and they were debating the issue of um, whether uh, some of the residents should be working or not. And Douglas was upset. He said he didn't see anything wrong with the residents uh, uh, being outside, getting some fresh air and doing some of the landscaping work and that sort of thing. And the response by the superintendent was is that they did, they no longer wanted to encourage the practice of um, free labor uh, among residents. What was that? Was there a change that occurred in terms of the role of residents within these institutions over time? Yeah, what we're finding is that particularly by the 1950s, when there's a number of different programs, you know, there are changes in the um, in the clinical director staff and the superintendent of the hospital at Weyburn, um, which didn't occur in North Battleford. So it's kind of interesting to compare those two institutions. North Battleford continued with its patient labor program throughout that period, and yet I think there were staff changes that were open to the idea of changing it. But also, this coincides with a change in a visitation program as well, which was sponsored by the provincial government under Tommy Douglas's lead, but also done in combination with a women's auxiliary society and with the Saskatchewan Transportation Company, um, which was a bus service that used to exist um, and offered free visitation for families, but also for this women's auxiliary group. So they went to go and visit patients. And part of this, under Osmond's direction in particular, was an effort to try to, you know, close down some of that um, knowledge gap or that experiential space between what people anticipate they're going to see in an institution and what, you know, people from the outside. So there there'd been such a sort of cultural distance that had grown in this relationship. The, the person you're referring to, of course, is Humphrey Osmond, the superintendent at that time, and a person that was brought in by the Douglas government. And of course, uh, when I talked about Tommy Douglas earlier, I mean, he was uh, responsible for resetting the policy uh, and bringing in some of these new figures like Humphrey Osmond. Um, now, what was Tommy Douglas's relationship with the Weber Mental Hospital? After all, 
He lived in Weyburn from the time of the Great Depression until the early 1960s when he became a politician. That was uh, his constituency. Uh, and the Weyburn Mental Hospital must have been the largest employer in the area. What was his relationship with the Weyburn Mental Hospital? Yeah, it's very interesting. He had a very close relationship with the hospital and a real, I think, real fondness for it as a, a space that he could really understand. And I, I'm certain that it informed his thinking when it came to policies surrounding mental health care. He had been an intern there uh, while he was doing his master's degree in the 1930s. And so he was very familiar with not only with the space of the hospital, but he had worked inside the walls of the hospital and would have been familiar with some of the patients there as well. Um, so I think I think that very much informed his thinking on the need to humanize these places. And certainly that's reflected in some of the hiring decisions that were made at the top level anyway. Um, so people like Osmond, who, who was incredibly keen on empathizing with his patients and trying to suggest that, you know, these people deserve to be treated humanely. So one of the things that he did um, that, you know, distinguished him from his predecessors was he insisted on buying better clothing. And uh, he and his wife, actually, they were traveling from London where he had been living before. Uh, they stopped in New York and they were looking at fashion designers to look for very good materials that he thought were washable, wearable, that didn't look wrinkled. He said he wanted people to be able to walk around in clothing that gave them some dignity. And so you start to see these kinds of um, ideas creeping into the way that he's trying to manage the institution. And uh, he, he routinely disparaged the state of things. Mm -hmm. Now, can you describe when and why Weber Mental Hospital quit being used as a facility where patients went to die, as so many of them had before? Yeah, and this is a trend that we see that certainly transcends beyond the walls of Weyburn. Um, but there are several different things going on here, I think. One is that there are treatments that are starting to give people hope. So many of these are pharmaceutical treatments or psychopharmaceutical treatments that control symptoms to the extent that people might be able to work. They might be able to r retain some kind of um, community or they might be able to live in the communities without uh, the kind of stigma and without the kind of immediate care that is required or the constant care that is required. And so some of that not only changes the, the direct experiences, but also the expectations about what can be managed in the community. And certainly there are real champions of that attitude who come into the Weyburn Hospital and really try to reform it. So people like Hugh Lefebvre, who was a psychiatrist who took over as clinical director and then ultimately as superintendent shortly after Humphrey Osmond left, he very, very strongly felt that the institution was the worst place for any kind of healing or rehabilitation. And what people needed were short stays in general hospital wards to help them, you know, whether it was to adjust their medications or to receive some kind of treatment or to seek some kind of shelter and safety if they were in an emergent crisis situation. And then what was really required is getting people back into the community where they can resume their regular lives, where we can in his words, you know, reduce the stigma by just interaction and tolerance through public education programs. Now, it didn't always work out that way, but he certainly was a very, very fierce advocate for changing the attitudes in the community as a way of tolerating mental illness in our in our midst as a as a just regular function of human of the human condition. Now, deinstitutionalization. Uh 
partly because of Weyburn occurred more quickly in Saskatchewan than in other parts of the country. How rapidly did deinstitutionalization occur in the rest of Canada? It really depends. There, not only on the institutions and on the communities in which they're situated, but also on the types of institutions that we're talking about. So there, there were some institutions that were designed specifically for uh, people who were considered feeble-minded or mentally deficient. In today's language, we would say intellectually delayed. Many of these were. Uh, many of the people who had been living in those institutions had been there for a very long time, so they often were institutionalized as children, and some of them were in their 50s or 60s the first time they were let out of an institution. And so for some of those people who had been, in most cases, very much estranged from their families and from any kind of networks in the community, it was much more a much longer process. Some people who had lived for a long time in psychiatric institutions, moved into nursing homes. So it's not really fair to suggest that this was a full-scale deinstitutionalization. In fact, scholars have suggested that it's a transinstitutionalization. And the same is true of some people moving into the prison system. We see that much more commonly in the United States, particularly with the privatization of the prison system, and there's, there's a, a much clearer connection there. In Canada, the emphasis is not as great, but we certainly see people moving into other institutions. Those who seemed to fare best were the people who had not spent a large part of their life already in the institution. Um, they, they had a much better chance of surviving in the community. That's right. Now, you use this very interesting phrase, the legacy of the asylum. What was the legacy of the asylum in Canada? That's a great question. I I think... That's something that all of us, uh, all of the authors, are really trying to drive at and trying to really reconcile our understanding and appreciation of what the asylum was for bad and for good. And I think from our vantage point here in 2017, when we completed the book, you know, most of us were, were fairly satisfied that the asylum is it's good, that it's a thing of the past. We don't want to return to large-scale custodial care. But by the same token, there are certain elements certain experiences from the asylum that we think are lost in a transition that to community care or whatever we want to call it. There are certain things that people miss about the asylum. Um, and sometimes I think there's just a feeling of safety, a feeling of belonging. For many people, the asylum was their home, and that is true of both staff and patients alike. And that sense of belonging and comfort and familiarity is not necessarily or immediately replaced in the community. And so we, it caused us to really reflect on what the asylum meant. And we had gone into this thinking like, yes, this is, you know, it's great, but it's terrible, you know, all these walls should be torn down. And by the end of the project, I think we had sort of softened on our approach and not to suggest that we should go back to an old way of thinking, but that we should think about what those places meant for the people who live there and what's lost in not having some kind of space. So what role did the closure of the asylums uh, play in the transformation of psychiatric care from your perspective? Uh, I, I think it's it's a significant, uh, extremely dramatic shift from if we assume that psychiatric care takes place in these custodial spaces, um, then there's a, a real routine. But also it may mean that people don't go, don't seek out psychiatric care until they're at a point where they expect to live in an institution. And that really changes. If you now imagine that 
you know, psychiatric care is something that you go and see your family physician about. Um, that's something that can be managed, something that we live with. Um, you know, you think about the the rates of people acknowledging psychiatric needs and what that does for our cultural appreciation of mental health, mental illness, um, difference, diversity, diversity of learning and thinking, I think it changes quite dramatically. The experiences, I think there are still um, people who are suffering and who are lacking in care and require that care. And I think this is the other thing that we really came to appreciate by the end of, of this project was, you know, we talk about mental illness as if it's one thing, um, but it is such a wide range of experiences and diagnoses and treatments and family connections and resources. I mean, there isn't really a, a typical experience. And so it was something that we really we really struggled to try to represent that as we put this book together and trying to capture what it means to think about mental health care in the 21st century. That's a very good point. And even today in terms of um, health care and health policy, we tend to lump all of these conditions under something we call mental health. And there's been an increasing dissatisfaction with the state of mental health and mental health outcomes in high-income countries, including Canada. And we all feel like we're doing very poorly in that area. Uh, from your perspective, how are we doing now, and what could we do to really improve psychiatric care in Canada looking to the future based upon the lessons that you've drawn from this history? I think one of the largest lessons that we, you know, I, I want to say we encountered it, but I, I think we sort of were, were wise to this as we came into the project. I think one of the biggest issues with closing all of the hospitals is the way in which mental illness is now almost synonymous with poverty, um, severe mental illness in particular. And what we see with all of the bad that came with the asylum, with all of the sort of surveillance and la lack of autonomy that came with it, there were certain uh, elements of basic needs that were covered. And now, in order for people to have access to those basic needs, uh, you need to have some kinds of resources, whether those are friends and family and advocates or financial resources or educational resources, some kind of combination of things to secure housing, to secure safe employment, to have a quality of life. We found it really difficult to disentangle the elements of poverty from mental health care in the 21st century. And as a result, I think that one of the interventions that we could make to, that would have a greater impact on mental health outcomes is investing in basic needs. Well, Erica, thank you very much for this interview. My guest today was Erica Dick on her newest book, Managing Madness, Weber Mental Hospital and the Transformation of Psychiatric Care in Canada, published by the University of Manitoba Press in 2017. This interview was recorded at the Alan Slate Radio Institute of Ryerson University. It was produced by Sumit Dami. Thank you all. Mm -hmm.